Hey everybody and welcome to the Words Over Whiskey podcast, the discussion-based podcast over a glass of whiskey. I am your host Henry and joined once again, back again after an episode hiatus, I'm joined by my co-host Tom. Tom, how are you? I'm good, how are you Henry? I'm very well, thank you. It has been... You hesitated there, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's just, it, it, I hesitate because it's strange because I'm actually looking at you again. This is our first episode in what, over a year over... that we've actually been able to see each other as we talked. Yeah, I Which think... is not due to a webcam error in my case, for the record. No, but... Yes, because going back to the very start of the podcast, we recorded three episodes in person, and then because I was lazy, I didn't edit them, and it was only until COVID came about that I actually had time to edit them, and then we released them, but since then... We couldn't meet up to actually record anymore. No, so we've been doing all our episodes for the past about year and a half, and we've all been remotely, me at my house and you at yours, and finally... After almost running this podcast for two years, we were actually back to... Um, Has it been two years? Yeah, we started... We recorded the first episode in January 2020 and released it in... Oh, I see, I see. March. Yeah, so it's been a year and, what, ten months, something like that? Something like that, yeah. We're recording this uh, in October, which was... Yeah, I think the last episode we did together remotely was in July, and then I had other Tom from Greenwell Gaming on as a, our first guest. <laughs> you pulled a face because you weren't involved in that episode. Other Tom. <laughs> Bit, bitter. Other Tom. He is Tom too. Tom too. Okay, Tom too. <laughs> that doesn't get confusing at all. <laughs> but yeah, Second I, Tom. His, his episode we recorded in August and because we've both been quite busy, we haven't actually been able to meet up and get this episode recorded. So October now, it's been a few months. So plenty of books to talk about and some new whiskey to try. Now, do you want to introduce this whiskey, Tom? Because you were the one who bought this and I did not know what you were getting for this episode. So for this episode, and I'm really sorry if I mispronounced this, we have Hatasaki Pure Malt, which is a Japanese blended whiskey from the... Kaikyo Distillery? I, I'm probably not saying that right, Henry. Uh, Kaikyo, yeah. yeah, it's... yeah it's the, well, it's just the accent on the O, so I have absolutely no idea how to say. Which is, comes in this beautiful box that has, it looks like um, one of those really fancily um, drawn Japanese letters with the nice characters. Yeah, I mean, it's got one of those red stamps in the corner. It's really beautiful. And um, I think you commented earlier, Henry, the colour of the whiskey is actually quite light. Yeah, it's very quite pale. Yeah, and I've just realised on the back it actually says without colouring. So that might be, um, of course I'm not saying that every other whiskey has had to do with food additives or whatever. It's, but uh, it's, it's often with scotch. It's it's called it's a colouring called caramel. Of so it's, it's, ah, so it's it will not, actually be coloured. Yeah, so it's not... A, That's what it, gives it that beautiful amber colour. So for some, there are whiskies that will be naturally coloured and they will often, it's kind of a marketing thing and they'll say it on the box that they are naturally coloured. Other ones will might say, oh, it ha- has had this coloured ad- additive. Um, and others won't but for some they are that nice dark colour but it is because they've had this additive it's called I think it's called caramel but it's not it doesn't impact the flavour at all it is literally just to change uh, the colour and often it's used for just industry standard so I think for like certain like blended whiskies they want it to look the same every time so they will add this colouring to it like with Johnny Walker sort of yeah although I can't I can't say for certain without investigating further whether 
Johnny Walker do, but I imagine they might. But I often wonder where you find all these facts from. <laughs> well, it's sheer interest in the industry, and <laughs> because Fair enough. It, it's it's sort of my passion. It's what I want to absolutely find. What I want to do. So yeah, I I go down a rabbit hole of interesting whiskey facts when I'm bored, and yes. Which I'll have another fact. That, that was kind of an extra bonus, <laughs> extra whisk, bonus fact, whiskey extra trivia. bonus fact. Because this is what episode now, Henry? It's episode twenty. So yes. we get a bonus fact for episode twenty. Yeah, I completely forgot. We didn't even say what number episode. Yeah, episode twenty. Blimey, it feels it feels like it. Yeah, it, it, it is bizarre to be back and doing this in person. But right. do you want to open the bottle, Tom? Yes, I'm eager yes. to try this because you'd said you were going to get the whiskey and you were going to surprise me. Nice. That's a good pop. Um, That's a good pop. But you gave me three guesses before you showed me what bottle it was. And, and I, you're off by about, what, 10,000 miles? Yeah. <laughs> so I, because you're a bit of a peat head, you like your smoky whiskies. I do indeed. Oof. Blimey, that's a very healthy glass. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> I, can get, I can get one that's got my own measurements written on, if you like. <laughs> but, because I know you're a bit of a peat head, you like your smoky whiskies. I guessed an Ardbeg, because we've never had Ardbeg before. Uh, I said Bemore because I know you love Bemore, and I said Lafroy. It's pronounced Bemore. I thought it was pronounced Bemore. Oh, that's maybe that's just how I'm reading it. I think it's pronounced Bemore. Ah, Bemore. Yeah, but I guessed all Bemore. of those because I know they're uh, smoky whiskies, um, which I know you like. We've had Bemore on before. We haven't had the Lafroy, but we've tried Lafroy. I almost got Lafroy actually. Yeah, I thought he might. Ardbeg. I think we should try that because I've heard uh, positive things about Ardbeg, but I've never had it. But uh, yes, you you completely surprised me when you pulled out a Japanese whiskey. I was like, oh, blimey, I haven't had a Japanese whiskey in ages. And yeah, it, I remember seeing this and going, this will surprise him. Yeah. This will surprise him. It is amazing how light it is. It's slightly yellowish, but it does almost look like it could be completely clear. I agree with everything you said, but it always panics me when you hold the glass in that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's holding it up very delicately. Holding it upright, yeah. I'm just like, if I don't have at least one finger underneath steady in it, I'm not happy. Right. There's a smell test. It's quite nice and floral. Yeah, I would say it's a much stronger smell than many whiskies we've had for a long time. Or maybe you're becoming... Very fragrant. A, you're, you're becoming accustomed to it. I'm, my, my influence is wearing off. I'd say it's quite sweet. It's all the, yeah, very nice floral smell, almost um, maybe getting hints of green apple as well. I don't know if I can narrow it down quite yeah. that much. Right. Put some on my lip. <laughs> <laughs> Just too eager. Well, cheers, Tom. Cheers, Henry. Good, good to be to back. Do, yeah, good to be back. Mm. It's got oh, sort of like that. a really smooth, no sort of peat or smokiness to it, but it's very, um, it's almost got like a really nice... I think quite flavourful. Sort of lingering sweetness at the end there. Really sticks to the end of my tongue. Yeah, well, I really enjoyed that. When I say enjoy, I'm going to keep drinking it. If you can translate the Japanese characters on, on the back of the box, Henry, <laughs> we might be able to. It's probably just what it says in English underneath. To be yeah, fair, yeah, it just gives a background of the um, uh, the lighthouse that the distillery's situated. Hence the name of the bottle, but doesn't give any flavour notes. I'll, I'll look it up. Um, yeah, it's kind of um, I don't know slightly most multi grainy flavour but with a nice bit of sweetness there's slight hints of sort of ethanol to it slightly getting a bit of that on my tongue yeah I kind of feel, I feel like I get more flavours from the smell of it than I get from the taste of it it's not an unpleasant taste by no and it means it goes down very smoothly I'd say it's quite simple yeah it's not oh, it's not complex I'm not getting a loads lot of, of different flavours loads of different flavours it's it's certainly 
nice. And maybe it's just part of my developing palate. Maybe if I would continue to drink more whiskey for a while and then come back to it, I'd be able to pick more out. But it does have a kind of a slightly ethanol taste to it. Not unpleasantly so. Quite smooth. Like I said, no peat or anything. But yeah, it's like a lingering sweetness at the end. I'll yeah. do a little um, Google search and see if I can find anything on any tasting notes <laughs> that might be able to give our audience a bit of a... Remember to put that as the pure malt because there's a, another bottle which is just Hatazaki, I think. I love the design on the side of the box. Where it's got the um, pagoda and, the... and then it's got some waves. Yeah, it's a pagoda. Are those clouds or is that the seesaw? Is that more waves? It, it, reminds, me, it reminds me of um, the lighthouses in Ghost of Tsushima. Well, yeah, I imagine they were built very similarly. Oh, it's actually a picture of the lighthouse in the box, just there. Oh, yeah. I assume that's the lighthouse there in the background. Bit of history behind the whiskey. Well, at least for the namesake of the whiskey. Okay, so I'm borrowing Master of Malt's tasting notes here. So on the nose, they say it's aromas of dried fruit, sweet malt, drizzle of honey, aromatic incense, and sandalwood. Uh, maybe I'm slightly close with the f- dried fruit. I said sort of green apple, maybe. I didn't get honey or uh, sandalwood. I got the honey. I said sweetness. Did you say honey, though? Well, not, not honey specifically. Yeah. Uh, palette, rich and complex with the good help of malt. I said uh, sort of malt and uh, yeah. Yeah, aromatic spices. Oh, it is called pure malt, so yeah. I would have, yeah, to Dried be fair. fruit, toasted cereal notes with a slightly creamy vanilla undertone. Finished delicately. Cream. S- yeah, I, I, I can see that. Sweet honey on the finish with lingering cigar bombs. Cigar bombs? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think our palate needs a bit more developing, Tom. <laughs> we didn't really get any of those, but so we found a whiskey that's the both of us. Yes, oh, it's nice though. It's very good, isn't it? So how would how would this rate amongst the whisk- all the whiskies you've had? So in the top ten at all, or not even close, or mm. and how's it compared to the other Japanese whiskies we've tried? Because we've tried Nikka from the Barrel. Yeah, we've tried Akashi. Akashi. Uh, we've also tried quite a few off podcasts. We've had the Suntory, Suntory uh, which was in Suntory Toki, I think yeah, it was. Toki, yeah, Toki, yeah. had Yamazaki. Um, I don't think I've had the Yamazaki. Yamazaki, I would probably be among, among my favourites of the um, <laughs> Japanese ones I've had. I don't know. I, it, it Top you up, Henry? Uh, I think I'm okay at the moment. You gave me quite a healthy portion <laughs> to begin with. Um, because I've had I've had certain whiskies which I think, like I've said before, you're a big smoky peat head for whiskies, whereas I tend to prefer smoother ones. But I like smooth ones with a lot of where I can pick out a lot of flavors. Then I particularly I like, like complex ones. Complex ones with like flavors, reminiscence of like oak or fruit cake and vanilla and spice. I'd say uh, a go-to for me would be Dean. Uh, what Deanston, uh, well, Deanston is lovely uh, of the special ones I've had. Talking of Deanston, check out uh, the episode I released recently of Whiskey Shorts, which was me talking about my experience at the uh, Deanston Warehouse Number 4. Um, just a little plug for ourselves <laughs> there. No, uh, Downmore, Downmore 12. I, is that the one with the bo- where on the bottle it's got the deer head? Yeah, the, 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 the antlers. The silver stag head. Yeah, that's yeah absolutely lovely and just beautiful mix of complex flavours to it um, that it was the first time I tried it when I was in Scotland I bought a bottle at a very good price like too good to pass up and it was just phenomenal I think I gave you a little sample as well didn't I I think you did yeah it's just lovely and smooth and rich with flavour those are my 
type of whiskies and love when they've got lots of character to them, being able to pick it up. Um, and you're saying this one does not have as much character? I'm not saying it hasn't got good flavour, because it's easy sipping, it goes down. It just... I, maybe it's me. Like I said, I'm still developing my palate. I'm just not pick. Uh, I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it goes down easy, really nice, nice touch of sweetness to it, which I like, and with a bit of sweet tooth. Lovely on the nose. Yeah, I think. amazing smell. Um, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's just I can't pick out as much from it as I can other ones. And I think, yeah, it smells absolutely So it's phenomenal. wounded your whiskey pride. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, as I'm trying to, yeah, trying to get better, but I can't. Well, this is good. This is your training. I found one that's a challenge for you. Mm. I'm really proud of myself for this. So I really like this whiskey. It's been a challenge for you. I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, I can see the smug look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> well, as this is a blend, that leads perfectly to your whiskey trivia. Onto my piece of whiskey trivia, which I hadn't forgot about and quickly looked up a fact just before the episode started. I wonder what you were doing. I was yeah. trying to talk to you. <laughs> This is perfect for this then. So the piece of whiskey trivia for the day is that the first blended whiskey in the world was a mixture of malt and grain produced under the name Green Stripe in 1860. I've heard of Green Stripe. Yeah. Now, whilst I was in uh, Scotland, I went to the um, Scotch Whiskey Museum that they have up in Edinburgh. Oh, and well, that's definitely a go-to place for you. Yes, of course. <laughs> and there, they had this um, room just filled with old a collection of old whiskey that had been donated to them. I'm pretty sure I remember seeing a bottle of Green Stripe there as well. Yeah, there was a bit of the story behind it and the backstory of malted, uh, malted and blended whiskeys were presented to you as you made your way through the museum. I like that. I like interactive displays and things. Yeah, it was good. A friend had recommended it to me um, before I went because they'd been like a couple of years ago and said, oh, because they knew I love whiskey. He's like, oh, you've got to go check this out. So, of course, I put it on my list and went and checked it out. And- I have just heard of it and I said you should do that <laughs> yeah. and check it out. <laughs> yeah. It was right by Edinburgh Castle as well. So it's quite you know, nice um, afterwards to just go check out the views from the castle. It was really good. But uh, yes, so that's the uh, whiskey side of things. Shall we move on to the literature, to the books? Before we continue, uh, move on, I have, I have a question. Mm. So, Buddha's whiskey is called Scotch. Mm-hmm. Is that, this is sort of a, more, a unique term. If you say Scotch, you mostly mean whiskey, don't you? No, so Scotch is specifically referring to Scottish whiskey. Yeah, that's what I mean. But there's no specific word for iris. I mean, bourbon is obviously for American whiskey, yep. but there's no specific term for iris or Japanese whiskey. No, uh, unless you were to say, "Can I have an Irish whiskey or can I have a Japanese whiskey?" Yeah, yeah. If you're, yeah, if you're referring to Scotch, it is Scottish because uh, Scotch. for for a whiskey to be considered Scotch, it has to have been made in Scotland and matured in Scotland for a minimum of three years. Mm. So you've made it in Scotland and matured it in I don't know England for three years. It wouldn't actually be Scotch, even though it would have been made in Scotland by a Scottish company. No, so that, that's um, that's quite interesting. Going back to Japanese whiskies, so I think this is back in like 2016 or something. Uh, Yamazaki, they won a, like the best whiskey in the world award for one of their whiskies, and then the sale of Japanese whiskies went through the roof. Yeah, um, and of course they actually didn't have enough to keep up with demand, so getting hold of Japanese whiskies quite difficult, making it very expensive. Yes. Bloody scalpers. <laughs> but 
thing with Scotch whiskey is it's got quite a few regulations and rules in place on it. Whereas at the moment, Japanese hasn't. I think it's gradually new rules are being introduced. But a lot of the times, what as far as I'm aware and from things I've read and heard, that some Japanese whiskies, you could go and buy a Japanese whiskey, but if you didn't check the bottle and the label carefully, it would actually be like, it'd be, a, it'd be like a blended whiskey or a Japanese whiskey. Um, but if you checked the small print, um, it would actually be a mix of like English, Scottish, Irish whiskies, and then with some Japanese whiskey thrown in there, blended oh. together. So it's actually a complete mix of different whiskies. But well, they did that to say to quick, make quickly get some more on the yeah. market, I'm assuming. Yeah. And um, because it had some Japanese whiskey in it, they then, Labeled it. Whereas I think now they're, um, yeah, they're gradually implementing rules where you have to, you'll have to say it's made from worldwide whiskey. So, um, the more rules they put on Japanese whiskey, do you think it will evolve into something like scotch? Like that has that sort of, um, appeal or class to it and and has that, like a fancy name and its own sort of class of drink, do you think? I think, I think Japanese whiskey by, uh, by right is, is, already at that level or, well probably not quite as prestigious as scotch but it is this is interesting part of the history is that i i cannot remember his name for the life of me but um the guy who basically introduced whiskey to japan uh japanese he went over to scotland to train under like a master distiller in scotland and so a lot of the are you jealous just a little bit <laughs> yes, this is what I want to do. Um, <laughs> we'll do is become Japanese. <laughs> I just, well, I was going to say, just open my own English distillery. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, but well. he went over to Scotland, and so he learned a lot of the methods of making whiskey the way the Scots do, and he then took them back to Japan. I think, I think he... I don't know whether he was the founder or he worked for the Yamazaki. I think distillery. I think it was Yamazaki or Suntory, one of those two. This is where I'm um, a bit hazy. I can't remember whether they're combined under the same company, one of the same or not. I'll have to check for future episodes. But um, yeah, hence the could be your whiskey trivia for the next episode. Yes, um, but the life of this guy. <laughs> That'd be quite cool, actually. Yeah, uh, actually, should we do that as a segment, like uh, whiskey celebrities? Like Ooh. people who are involved in the, you know, whiskey industry and like bits about the facts about them. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Or we could do like a mini episode. Like, or... like John, like John Walker himself and yeah. that, this Japanese guy. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. I like that's that. That's a idea. good idea. Yeah. See, so yeah, I have a purpose on this <laughs> podcast. So yeah. So, um, Japanese whiskey actually owes a lot of its, uh, methods to scotch. But of course, thank you. <laughs> Um, there is slightly, at the moment, slightly less rules regulating the um, distilling methods or, and everything and marketing of it, but they are gradually bringing in more, as far as I'm aware. Of course, this is just stuff I've learned from my interest in whiskey. And I'm sure there are other people who know that much more than me out there and would say, nope, you got that wrong or you got that right or whatever. But Feel free to message us on our social media if you do know any more and you'd like to send us off at any facts. Yes. Yes, we do have a we have an Instagram page now, Words Over Whiskey. Please, in, Henry, introduce it, introduce it. Let's plug ourselves even more. <laughs> yeah, so uh took me long enough, but finally um, set up a Instagram. So we've been uploading some pictures of some of the cool whiskey we've been trying and 
I think a few throwbacks to some of the distilleries I've been to. So yeah, go give us a follow on there if you like pictures of whiskey and you enjoy the podcast. And yeah, if you want to send in any ideas our way, tell us what you like, tell us what we can improve upon. Or just send us recommendations. Yeah. Any whiskeys that you think we should try. Yeah, well, send us free whiskey if you want. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. So yeah, at Words Over Whiskey on Instagram, you can find us there. We'll probably plug it again at the end of the podcast. God, going on about whiskey for almost 25 minutes now, Tom. Shall we We should move on. We should move on. What have you read recently then, Henry? Well, because uh, it had been so long since we'd done the previous podcast, I had to pull out my book journal and remind myself of what I had been reading. And, well, two of the books, I know you were definitely, well... One I borrowed from you, and one is from a series you've constantly recommended, well, a spin-off of. So I read, uh, for the first time in quite a lot, well, I read another Jim Butcher book, The Harry Dresden Files, which is one of your favourite series. Favourite series of all time, guaranteed. Yes, it's... Um, Which one did you read? Summer Night. Summer Night. Yeah. And was it the fourth or the fifth one? I can't remember. It is the fourth, I believe. I, I... Enjoyed it, but I think it was actually my least favourite of the four I've read so far. That's quite interesting, actually, because I I thought it was quite good. I thought it... Because the premise of the series, which is not a spoiler, is the main character, Harry Dresden, is a private detective and also a wizard in modern Chicago. Um, And that's the premise of the series. And I think that Summer Night actually brought it more towards the private investigator detecting style, a bit more than some of the other books. Which, um, I think the last two, I think the first two were quite private detective y, but I think the last one, Grave Peril, kind of diverged a bit and became a bit more personal for Harry. Yeah, it was very heavy on the magic side of things. Not a complaint, it's still an amazing book, but I I quite liked how Summer Night brought it back a little bit. Yeah, there was quite a lot of detective elements. Exactly. I I didn't not enjoy it, I think I really enjoyed it. I think just compared to the other. Compared to the other three. You've read so Yeah, far. I think it's just... I, I'll accept that. I just, you're still saying it's a good book, so I'll accept yeah, that. No, it was still a good book, and I, I powered through it and really enjoyed it. I just think I the motive of the villain, there were just... I There were a couple of bits I felt almost there was like a slight plot holy to, not, or maybe I just missed their a part of their motive. It just felt like I'd maybe missed a piece in the writing or something. Maybe you read it too quickly and... <laughs> The obvious of roles of reverse now. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic book. I'll definitely read the next one. I think that's one of the ones you recommend the most highly. Is is it Death Mask? Is that the next one? Death Masks. I believe it is. Yes. I'm looking at it right now. Yes. Yeah. Death Mask is the next one. No, I really enjoyed it. And I like the uh, action sequence. And I agree. Like, It's really cool to see, like, because he, he is a detective well, or private investigator. And, and it's also cool. a wizard. Yeah, it's cool to see those elements. It was just, they were, understand the villain's motive, but then I was like, there was a certain part, I was like, but hang on, if you do that, there's no guarantee that you will survive as well. And it just kind of glossed over that, in a way. I kind of got, I don't really want to say anything without spoiling stuff, but... So pay extra attention to motives of the characters, because what you're saying, because character motivations are a really important part of storytelling. Yeah. Um, and you're saying that it didn't quite hit home on that for everyone. No. It's it's, it's like their, their, their motive kind of... I could understand what they were trying to achieve, but there was like... But then I was thinking, hang on, but if you do that and then you're doing it for the, this reason that you've said, 
that this thing could still go wrong for you. And I kind of felt like something had been missed there. Yeah, that was just my slight, I, my one minor gripe with it. But overall, yeah. Amazing book. Yeah, it's not going to put me off reading the others. I still really enjoyed it and out through it. Are you starting to see how the characters that show up in, the, in roughly each book, like Harry and his supporters, are you, are you starting to enjoy seeing them grow and develop and uh, seeing them pop up and seeing what's changed for them since the last book? Yeah, it was good, like with the supporting cast and everything. Yeah, I think, I think that's did, the strongest part of the series. He did, a, like, fortunately, it also gave reminders of where these previous characters had been before mm. so it was like oh wait oh hang on now I remember them and it, then it, it it kind of gave an explanation of how you kind of knew them or at least enough to remind you which book you knew them from previously but it also then gave a description of how they developed and that was quite nice because uh, I remember, I think uh, it was one of the earlier books they introduced a character but the way they in- uh, Jim Butcher introduced him was like wait uh, I think I had to say to you, wait, am I meant to know this character already? And you're like, oh no, he's in- new in this book. And I was like, okay, kind of. To be like fair, I know exactly the character yeah. and the part you mean, and I had exactly the same response. Um, and I think the worst person, author for that I've ever read is actually Derek Landy, the author of God Dog Be Pleasant. I think he does that way too much. Yeah, but to, uh, with Temper Frey, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, but in, the, in like the new, the reboot, I call it. Yes. I, I think that that's happened way too much. It's like, should I know who this is? Should I know who this is? Should I know who this is? I don't know who that is. No, I really, uh, I did really know. Anyway, before I go on, move on to my next one, what have you been reading, Tom? I recently read, and I think we discussed it back in July, um, Sogum oh, by yes. James Clavell. Um, now, this is interesting because you were reading it, and yes. I had another friend who was reading it at a very similar, similar time. Mm-hmm. And you both had very different opinions. Very different opinions. Um, well, actually, they probably weren't that different. I tend to over-exaggerate like one point and just moan about that in a long 20-minute <laughs> rant. I don't know if anyone's noticed. The rest of the book is probably fine. So I, I would like to say that it is an amazingly written book. It is absolutely amazingly written. I think it came out quite a long time ago. Definitely say you know several decades ago, if not 50 years. But don't quote me on that. It's just over there. You can check. I could check, can't I? I could check. 1975 was first published. Oh, it's that old. It is that old, I didn't yeah. realise it was quite that old. Yep, yeah, 1975, which makes it, just a quick maths for me, please, Henry. Why are you asking me? Because I don't want to do I'm it. terrible at maths. I'm the guarantee I'm worse. 1975, 25. 46. <laughs> you said you were terrible at maths. <laughs> so when I said about 50 years, I think I'd, I'd like to say thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. So yeah, for a book that's about 50 years old, I'm expecting my response to this book to be similar to when I when we reread um, The Fellowship of the Ring a few months ago. Mm. Where I was like, I don't think it really stands up to more modern writing techniques, which are more aimed at drawing readers. Slightly slower, like very descriptive of surroundings and everything, wasn't it? That's why, yeah. It, this book was nothing like that. I felt this book was closer, almost like, I don't want to say young adult style of writing, so it's definitely much more complex and well-written than that. But I would say a young adult would have no problem picking up the language and syntax and sentence structure of this book. I think you could like you could read way into this book without even realising it. It's very easy to read, is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Mm. The way James Navel portrays scenes is so clear and crisp. They're like movie scenes. Like I, I can still remember specific scenes from the book where... 
things happened, and I can just see them perfectly in my head. Like barely anything will happen. I think it'll just uh, he'll just describe a room, and one character will just look up. That's all that happens. But the way it's described, and the way every, what everyone's doing at the time, is just perfect. I really see it. it. I think it has been made into a movie, and I can see why. Because it's really cine- cinematic, the way it's described. I loved that. I really enjoyed it. it it's interesting, because like, when we we talked about it at work and everything, at, at the very start, when you were reading it, you were saying, oh, I'm really enjoying this, and you were going through it really quickly. But then they got to a point where you weren't enjoying it as much. Yes. That, this is true. He goes to notes on his. I have got a lot of notes. Um, so I had two major problems. I'm afraid to say with this book that was amazingly well written. Well, actually, I might be able to say three, but I don't really count the third one. The third problem is it's 1,200 pages long. <laughs> it's really long, and it, it takes place over the course of several months, and not as much happens as you'd think. Mm. So at first I was loving it, but as I got to about six hundred, page six hundred, I started to think there's loads more books I could be reading. I need something to improve. Just a bit of fatigue setting. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's the what you saw there, Henry. Yeah. Um, but I don't really count that as a problem because it's James Fable's book. He can it can be as long as he wants. The two problems I had. The first problem was the book has an agenda. There are some books that, that writers write which are uh, have a social political agenda. They try and teach you, you know, they try and preach what the author believes. This is not that kind of book, but it is trying to educate you on something. It's trying to educate you on uh, Japanese culture and um, history from the early 1600s, late 1500s. Absolutely fascinating. Really enjoyed it. Got old about 600 pages in. <laughs> But for 600 pages, I was like, this is amazing, this is fascinating. And I actually found myself, the, the facts that I picked up from reading this book, I would tell people I met, and they'd be like, oh my god, that's amazing. Or in many cases, that's horrendous, that's horrible. I wish I, I'm glad I wasn't born then. Although I personally think it would be better than being born in 1600s Europe, but that's my opinion. <laughs> but the problem with having a purpose in a book, if I notice that purpose, it draws me out of the narrative, if that makes sense. I stop believing that the, in the narrative and start to see in Oh, that whole passage was to teach me about household chores in 1600s Japan. And even though it's taught, it's shown to you as a character interacting with another character through a really well written piece of dialogue, by the way, that I, I, I saw through it and I was like, well, that purpose was to educate me. It doesn't actually serve the story. And so when I started noticing that more and more, I started drawing out, being drawn out of the story, if that makes sense. And I'm going to say, it's affected your immersion, hasn't it, Tom? I was going to say, it, it, it sounds almost like sort of, um, for you, it's kind of a minutiae detail that for you, you're very focused on. But it sounds like the majority of readers, it would just I be part that. of the story. That's them. fair. That's fair. And yeah, if if the book was a maybe, I don't know, <clears throat> a little bit shorter, <clears throat> I wouldn't have noticed it at all, to be honest. My biggest problem, and maybe, maybe you could argue and say my only problem with the book, was a problem of promise. Now, what I mean by promise I'm going to, uh, for help, draw on our Lord and Saviour, Radden Sanderson, <laughs> with his incredibly invaluable uh, YouTube lectures about storytelling and writing in general, specifically science fiction and fantasy, which I know does not have much effect here, uh, variance here, but what I'm trying to say is, when someone writes a novel, whether they intend to or not, they are making readers a load of promises in their first few chapters. So, for instance, if you write a book and in the first the first few chapters are really dark and gritty. 
then you're promising the reader this is going to be a dark and gritty book. And if later on the book becomes really lighthearted and silly, you as a reader are going to be like, what the hell is this? This is this is not what I expected. I don't enjoy this. It doesn't work. And that's because the reader has broken their tone promise. Or it's like, say, if you set up the story, it's like the hero is going to be fighting the dark villain at the end and everything, and then the hero goes and just starts working on a farm or something. It's that's, completely yeah, diverged yeah, from... Yeah, actually, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's, a, from, uh, that's broken the plot promise. So if you establish quite clearly... That your character is going to go off and fight the Dark Lord, did you say? Yeah. And then actually he does something completely different and never mention the Dark Lord again. Then yeah, that's broken the promise. And you're the reader going to be very disappointed because I'm looking forward to this big battle between the hero and the Dark Lord and it never happens. And you'll be disappointed. And actually, your scenario that you, that you just said is pretty much my problem with Shogun. So, um, Henry, can you put, when we do the podcast, uh, the script and spoiler alert now for Shogun? Yeah, I'll include it in the uh, timestamps. Yes, please. So I would like to explain why I stopped reading this book. And basically, it's for the exact reason that Henry hit the nail on the head. Very early on in the book, they establish that there is going to be a big battle at some point. And the battle that they're foreshadowing is the battle of... And I again apologise for my Japanese pronunciation. Sekigahara, which is the Battle of Sekigahara, which is one of the most pivotal, important battles in Japanese history. This battle decided the fate of Japanese history from 1600s onwards. It would not. It, it, it was the last battle that unified Japan into the country it is now. I think. I'm not a Japanese historian expert. It's a really big battle. Henry, do you remember that Netflix docu series, Age of Samurai, yes. on Netflix? Yeah. The battle at the end of that series, uh, that's okay. Sekigahara, that big one where Tokugawa Ieyasu won. That's that, that's, that's the battle that they were foreshadowing. That really big battle that hung on a knife's edge and could have gone either way. Mm. So when it, that was foreshadowed, I was so happy. I was like, James Clavell is an amazing writer. This is an amazing, super important battle. I can't wait. 600 pages later, no hint of the battle starting, but that's okay. Lots of build up. Another 400 pages later, on page 1,000 by now, still no hint of the battle. <laughs> Only a month has passed in the last 400 pages. That's okay, we'll keep going. And eventually I did get tired, and I skipped to the end, and the battle doesn't happen in the book. It happens, I, w- I would like to say off-screen, but it's sort of on the very last page, it says the battle happens. Or is it in the sequel, because... I'm looking at your shelf The now, sequel there's... takes place 400 years later. Oh, okay. Uh, 200 years later. <laughs> Completely so... different. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was, thinking, I was like, I'm looking at your shelf and there's like, oh, I didn't realise there were follow-ups and there's, there's yeah, two so more. The next book, Taipan, that's actually a Chinese name, word. Oh, okay. And, so it, and Taipan refers to the business entrepreneurs who sprung up. I believe it's in uh, Hong Kong. The business entrepreneurs that sprung up uh, in Hong Kong in the 1800s when England took control mm. and brought capitalism. Well, well you know, uh, new trade opportunities. Mm. So very, very completely different. Yeah. Um, so what I'll say is... Anyway, back to Shogun. Back to Shogun. <laughs> James Clavell made me a promise. He promised me by foreshadowing in the Battle of Sekigahara that the Battle of Sekigahara would take place. If you foreshadow the heroes fighting the Dark Lord and that never happens, that's a problem. And the same here. You promised me a battle. I don't get the battle. I'm upset. Now, before you say, oh, Tom, you like, you like action in your books. You like, you want Michael Bay in literary form. That's not what I mean. And I would like to clarify for the moment on the podcast, whenever I've said, so a book is too slow 
or it's got bad pacing. What I actually mean is books have taken too long to get to their promise. We discussed a book earlier on the podcast called um, Under the Eagle by yes. Simon Scarrow. And I said I didn't enjoy it, but you loved it. It was one of your favourite books from your childhood. Is that right, Henry? Yeah. Um, still, it, like, the still series is. is still ongoing. And I think it's on book like, I think book 22 is coming Bloody out hell. this year. I'm definitely getting it. <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't understand why I didn't like the book. Yeah. Is that right? I worked out why I didn't like it. And it's not because it was slow. Well, actually, no. It's, it's because it was slow. That's why I didn't like it. And you're saying, but there was a battle, there was intrigue, mm-hmm. there was all sorts of stuff. And you're like, well, how could this possibly be slow? Mm-hmm. And the reason is, right at the beginning, this is not a spoiler, uh, in the prologue, they established that some treasure is lost by the Romans. That's on the blurb as, as well. Mm-hmm. So you promised me, in this prologue, the Romans have lost some treasure, we're going to go back to get this treasure. Spoilers for Under the Eagle now, they don't go back to get that treasure for two or three hundred pages. They don't even mention that treasure for two hundred pages. And that's why I said it was slow. Not because there was a lack of battle, but there was no one wanted to get this treasure. And I'm like, this treasure behind enemy lines is why I'm reading this book. It sounds like a great idea. Why aren't we going to do that? You promised me it. I, Henry, if that prologue wasn't there and they didn't establish the treasure until much later, and if they made that promise to me much later, I'd have enjoyed that book so much more. But because they promised me we're going to go treasure hunting in ancient England with hostile Celts because that didn't happen for ages I saw everything between then and when they finally went on treasure hunting as a detour as mm. a side quest and that's why I didn't enjoy it and so the like, same with Shogun that's interesting because that actually now you've explained it it makes sense I think go, it? going back to the uh, the episode where we actually talked about it I didn't quite get it but now you've explained it I can I can see where you're coming from so yeah. much better yeah it, what you've said makes makes sense to me but my my slight counter to it is is, do you not are you just purely focused on the destination do you not what about the journey because i i I agree the book actually i'm really glad you've mentioned that but you can finish it yeah because under the eagle it starts in germany where we join kato as he's a fresh recruit and uh, macro is a grizzled centurion but they're on campaign in germany and then by the halfway through the book, they uh, go to Britain. And then by the end, you're right, spoilers, they uncover this hidden treasure that was lost in Britain years ago. But a lot, ha- alerts, a, a lot the happened. They, they're involved in battles and skirmishes and going from one country to another all throughout the, the book, meeting new characters and everything. And they've, then they've got the finding the treasure and everything. I feel like there's a, there is a lot going. Well, I enjoy it. There is a lot in that 300 pages that. I enjoyed. That was enough to keep my attention till we get to the end result. And what I understand with Shogun is that you <clears throat> you did enjoy it. You found it interesting to learn this history, to learn about these characters and everything. I understand it, it is quite a long book and it does take some time to get through. But is it, you're just so focused, do you, maybe uh, you put your <laughs> finger up, is it you're very focused on the end the premise as you would say that's been set out or is it just so this is where as I mentioned before our lord and saviour Braden Sanderson comes in when Brad- <laughs> I'm going to get you a t-shirt one day <laughs> which is just a picture of his face and that, that uh, just, just me dressed as a Jehovah's Witness but with Braden Sanderson's first book uh, instead of the bible knocking on people's doors saying hi so let's we'll talk about our lord and saviour Braden Sanderson um, I've talked about his YouTube lectures before, and in one of them, when he's teaching um, his students about plotting, he talks about these promises that I've said. I, I got I got all this promise idea from him, um, and he says to make your story 
satisfying to a reader. You should be conscious of these promises you're making and actually make them deliberately and make sure you fulfill them at the end to make readers satisfied. But the real key to to keep people reading is showing that you're building towards the promise throughout the book. Mm. So if let's say, it's going to be your example. It's, it's almost like uh, little milestones. Exactly, you exactly. So your example earlier was the hero, you foreshadow, he's going to fight the Dark Lord. So let's say your milestones are some guy gives him a sword, he trains with the sword, he meets the bad guy's minions, he fight, fights the minions, he goes off on his quest to find the Dark Lord, etc, etc. You're making milestones on the way to get him to fighting the Dark Lord. To go back to Under the Eagle, Although you're absolutely right, the battle in Germany was cool, it was not a stepping stone towards fighting the Drezzo. Had nothing to do with that. That's the thing, I think it was, because they had to, they completed the campaign, or they completed their part in Germany, they were then transferred to Britain, and then... But what is, the the campaign in Germany, if that campaign had been in Syria, which Roman was also fighting at roughly the same time period, or in Illyria, or in North Africa, would it have made a difference? No. So how is it any relevance to the treasure at all? The fact that it's in Germany. That's the point. That's the point I'm making. If the book had started when Macro and Cato, is it, are first transferred to Britain, then everything they did from then on, from the moment that they're given the mission to find the treasure, everything from then on is a milestone towards finding the treasure. Mm. But everything before that is establishing character and setting the scene and educating you about Roman army life. Yeah. These, all these three are very important things. I'm not saying they're not, but the pacing in the, for that first segment of the book is slow because you're not building those milestones towards the promise. But I also, I think those are necessary steps. They are necessary steps. They, you're the, right. They there's are. a book I'll talk about later in the podcast, Ooh. which um, where I, with Under Eagle, I needed those necessary steps to get to know the characters and everything. And there's a book later on I'll talk about because I felt kind of mixed because it took a different route. But we'll get onto that later. Uh, Stephen King has a book called The Stand where the first 200 or more pages are just establishing character alone. Um, it's quite funny. I think in Under the Eagle, although those segments are incredibly important, you're absolutely right. They said, A, have either not, they are not taken aim and it was long, or B, they could have happened at the same time as working towards the treasure. For example, they're on campaign in Germany. What if their legate informs them that they're going to be going on a secret mission soon. Then you're reminding the reader the treasure exists, there's secret mission, a smart reader would work out it's probably got to do with the treasure that's been established. And you could just thread that those those small smaller but still milestones towards getting the treasure through the narrative of the important things, as you correctly said, have to, have to happen. I think because no one mentioned the treasure for so long, I got the for, it was a different book. Like the middle of the book was different from the end and the beginning, in my opinion, because I mean they were different countries doing mm. different things. So we we weren't actually meant to be discussing that book yeah. in this podcast. It, it, it kind of fits into what you were saying about Shogun. So I yeah, think it exactly. makes perfect sense. I know when I was thinking about Shogun, I was like, I can definitely relate this to Under the Eagle. Yeah, I think it is it works worth discussing because it illustrates the point doesn't it yeah and Soga was very similar it had to obviously establish Japanese culture and history it obviously had to establish some of European culture and history because that plays a massive part as well and establish character because you've got the contrast between the European characters and the Japanese characters which is an incredibly important part of the book and it being so long if that was going to take up extra segments then I understand however James Clavel at first did really well at threading 
the hints of what was happening in the Japanese society, the build-up to the Battle of Sekigahara, really well into what was happening. Mm. So I didn't even notice that he was teaching me about Japanese society and culture and so on until he kind of stopped threading Mm. the hints. Or maybe, I don't think he did stop. He continued, but he'd done it for so long. A thousand pages of hinting the battle's going to start soon, the battle's going to start soon. A thousand pages of that. Eventually it's like, is it, is it though? Is it? And it didn't. So I think, I think he was pushing his luck. I think it was very ambitious of James Clavel to keep it going that long. Hmm. Again, I think if the book was a bit shorter, it would have been in my, much better for me as a reader with my tastes. Other, other readers who maybe are less interested in, here's a promise, let's do something about it might probably enjoy it a lot more. Yeah, I was like like I said, there was I had a friend who was reading it. Yeah, same, what did he time. think? What did he, he really think? enjoyed it, as what he said to me. I think he he of course he didn't read it quite as quickly as you because mm. you're a very fast reader, but he I'll talk about that in a second, but keep going. <laughs> yeah, he re- he really enjoyed it from what I was waiting. I think he he said when I said to him that you had you were reading it but you you got to a point where you weren't enjoying it as much. And then when I said to him, Oh, he reached this point and stopped reading it, but my other friend carried on going. He was like, "Oh, it's interesting because I quite I enjoyed it. I wonder what you're." He was referring to you. Wondered why you hadn't enjoyed it. So it's quite I nice. think the big difference is I'm a really fast reader, so I can I find it easier to remember what's happened in a book because for me it's been a day or two, even for a book as long as this. What happened maybe hundreds of pages earlier. Whereas um, Henry, you're slower reading than myself. When you read Under the Eagle, for example, I imagine it took you a lot longer than it took me. So you might have actually forgotten that prologue was spent. You were no longer trying to keep that promise of the treasure in the back of your head subconsciously. So that when they eventually reminded you the treasure is still exists and we're going to go get it, it might for you you'd have been that's amazing. Now we're going treasure hunting. Whereas for me, because I remembered. This prologue. You're very focused on the end goal. Exactly. Right. It, well, yeah. I'm not saying I don't enjoy the milestones along the way there, but there weren't any. That's the problem. A key thing about storytelling is you. There's no rules. Just because I'm saying you should fulfil your promises, you don't have to if you can find an alternative solution. Uh, Brandon Sandler talks about that as well. <clears throat> so let's say let's go for your example again, Henry. You promise that the hero is going to fight the Dark Lord. But somewhere along along the way, he keeps finding clues. He doesn't even realise the Dark Lord isn't actually as bad as everyone makes him out to be. And when he meets the Dark Lord, turns out to be his, I don't know, his father. And they actually get, uh, reconcile and they live happily ever after together. But because you've actually paved the way with these hints that the Dark Lord isn't actually an asshole, the reader starts to think, oh, I hope he doesn't kill him now. I kind of feel sorry for him. And then you get there and he goes, oh, I'm not going to kill him now. The reader's like, yeah! So you can actually sort of change the promise partway through. So again, I wouldn't mind that at all. I'm not saying just because you've promised me you're going to kill this guy doesn't mean I'm going, if you don't kill him now, I'm going to be upset. It, I think it's just that groundwork along the way, mm. like the middle of the book. I might actually go so far as saying when you're writing the book, the middle might actually be, be the hardest because you're as the writer thinking I've got to finish this. Well, often, like you got the you you have the beginning and the end planned. It yeah, is, it is the, the middle. Mid, like the middle is the it's George R. R. Crombie. What am I talking about? Like, very <laughs> two different people confused. Very similar books in my defence. George R. R. Martin approach, where he plans the beginning, plans where he's going to end up, and lets the characters find their own way there, or so his yeah. words roughly. And yeah, so you're absolutely right. That could be more difficult. So, but I'm not goal. Although I'm goal orientated, I'm not destination orientated. I'm not going to be. 
if the journey is okay, then I'm, you know, if the journey is, is exciting, if, but if you have those milestones, I'm okay. If you go off on the, on a detour, and I'm sorry, but the campaign in Germany in Under the Eagle was a massive side quest, then I have a problem. Cause I'm like, we're not going anywhere with this. Kato doesn't, does he get a promotion? Not in that one. Well, no. he's immediately promoted to Opto because yeah. Mark Macro is down on Opto. Yeah. So he's immediately promoted to Optio, but he doesn't get, he doesn't get a promotion from the German campaign. He doesn't get any honors or awards, does he? I think they receive, he receives a battle honor because he saved the standard. Okay. But that's from that one particular battle. Nothing specific to the German campaign actually changed anything for him. I liked it because it gets to... It was it's cool. Some, it's some action. It's cool. I'm you not saying it wasn't cool. I'm not saying it wasn't a bit good bit of action. All I'm saying is for the book, as a, if you stand back and look at the book as a whole, it was a side quest. And that's what drew me out of the narrative. And for Shogun, eventually there was just, just too much educational bits and not enough build up to the battle. And then not battle at all. <laughs> and that's why I kind of drew... I think because... I wouldn't say I'm, you know, targeted on the goal. I'm just targeted on entertainment. I'm targeted on storytelling. And if you have another goal in mind, like educating, which historical fiction often does, then I'm thinking that I'm, if I notice you doing that, then I get disappointed in a sense. Because for me, novels are escapism. Novels are experiencing people's lives that are more interesting than my own. And if I start to see them less as a real person and more as a construct to teach me something or discuss something or present ideas, I know some people love that and that's not an issue. But for me, it makes me see this character as less real and I start to lose the fun I'm having. And that's just the person I am and the way I read. um, There is another book I want to talk about, but sort of segueing off something I said earlier when... You were discussing uh, with how I or how we, I said I liked the start of Under the Eagle, how it helped establish the characters and everything like that. Segway yeah. off that, where I said there was a book that I want to talk about where I'd had sort of trouble, um, is because I'm reading Dune at the moment ah, because the film by is, Frank Herbert. Yes, because the film is coming out later on this month. Thought, oh, is it this month? Yes, twenty first or twenty second of October. Um, yeah, I mean it's less than two weeks from the point of recording this i thought well i've heard so much of dune over the years i've big science fiction novel lots of people said and oh the film's coming out i've never read it i should read it before i um see the films and so i borrowed it off you and i'm reading it (laughs) it is taking me quite a while to get through i struggled with dune as well yeah i it's i've been reading it for almost two weeks now and so June is made up of three books combined into one, and I've only just finished the uh, first one. And it is partly because I think it lo- the book just launches into this sci-fi world where I feel like it's introducing all these things which it seems to take you as the reader as if you should know already. So it it's talking about the, like the, the Empire, the Emperor, the... Uh, the Harkonians and the treatises, the voice and the mentant and everything like that. All these different concepts. Oh, they're just thrown at you, aren't they? They're just thrown at you. And uh, particularly within the first 100 pages, thank God this book had a um, uh, a glossary of all these different terms it introduced. I did feel a bit lost. I'd like to introduce you to some fantasy books <laughs> that will make June look like a 
<laughs> much, much simpler. Yeah. Well, it's like going, going back many episodes now, we had the Court of the Air where I said it's just introducing all these. So again, again, that's not, I've seen much worse than the Court yeah, of the I Air. Yeah, I know, but you, you loved it. I didn't like mm-hmm. it because it just introduced so many things to you. They just all come out of left field and just for me, I needed a bit more of a steady introduction. But like with, I'm maybe like 250 pages in. I think it's about 550, 600 pages along the book. There have been times where I've really enjoyed it. I've been, oh, I've actually gone through quite a few pages and there's been a few times where I've really picked up steam with it. But the start, it was introducing this sort of Dune. It's this sort of royal family of this empire uh, take over another planet, which is a sand planet where water is like the most precious commodity and everything, apart from this mineable material called spice. And there are giant sandworms. Um, and stuff like that, but they people re- ride them. That's really important. People ride the sandworms. Oh, spoilers! Surely that's in the trailer. I haven't seen. I I haven't seen that. No, I saw that on the blurb. No, I don't remember anything about people riding them. I definitely knew it was going to happen. No, it's it, it. They do say it in the text. In mm-hmm. but by now you would have seen people say. Oh, yeah, the people here ride the sandworms. Nope. When, when you go back to the book, I'll look this up. I'm sure they say that. So far, all I've seen is a sandworm eater mining frigate thing. Yeah, minor spoilers then, Tom. Thanks. I'm sorry. I thought <laughs> I thought that's established. No, I established no. that early on in the book. By the way, these worms, you can ride them. No, I, I have no inclination of it. But there's this thing where... The, so the main character is from the house Atreides. Atreides? Atreides. Yeah, something like that. I'm um, pronounce that. And they seem to have these... Uh, another house called the Harkonians seem to have Harkonnens. this... Harkonnens. They have a grudge against them. And they're sort of they're in like this shadow war against each other and the em- emperor is kind of keeping out of it but he's provided some provided some of his troops to the Harkonnen Atreides Atreides but I was like okay it's gradually established that these two families are fighting so they but I have absolutely no clue why they have this crutch and I'm it's, again I'm pretty certain that's established it, it, maybe it has been but I it's completely you, you might have been lost in all the world building as well that's the thing. I think all the background noise has um blocked out some important stuff for the book yeah and that's that's my thing there's so many different concepts thrown at you there's another friend of ours is currently reading it and he's grasped all of these things yeah but i'm i'm sort of lost with certain bits it's like characters are introduced some some characters seem to have this special training where they can pick up nuances in people's voices this other character is is um like some sort of prophet or messiah or something and and everything and it's just all these concepts are thrown at you right at the start as well as getting around the sci-fi concept of all the travel the like something against humans being basically trained as supercomputers and the thing against and there's like some genetic thing like there aren't pure humans but they're trying to establish pure humans again because there was Years ago, there was something to do with machines taking over, and now man cannot make machine in his image. There's just all these things thrown at you. Like, so, like you said, I've kind of, I must have lost something in, in the introduction or the first few couple of hundred pages of the book. I've lost some pieces because there was so much thrown at me. I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of confused as I'm going. This, okay. Firstly, this isn't even the most difficult part of the, the, of the book. June is quite famous. For having a fairly unique writing style of basically hopping between characters 
heads. Oh, it does that so quickly. Exactly. Almost um, like paragraph to paragraph. Each paragraph could actually be in a different character's brain, which is really jarring at first. I found it really jarring. I'm like, oh, we're watching this character do this, and now we're watching another character. And I'm like, well, hang on. Just like that, that, no break, no anything. Yeah, they've got like um, their own thoughts and everything chucked in there. Exactly. Like swapping from character to character. It's quite hard to see who's thinking this thought. Like, is it this character? Is it this person? So it can definitely be very difficult. Um, Maybe to help you out, you can treat these powerful space families like the noble houses of medieval Europe. Like well, the- I was thinking this earlier. I was out earlier and I was thinking, we've got this podcast lecture and I was going to talk about Dune. I was thinking, oh, it's kind of like a space Game of Thrones where... Yes. Because I was yes, thinking... So it, yes, it really is. Because I was thinking, oh, there's the em- emperor, but he's kind of leaving these houses to do their infighting and everything. I was like, well, that's kind of like Game of Thrones where like the Starks and the Lannisters have their grudge and everything. And why do they grudge each other in? Game of Thrones because they're killing each other yeah they? they don't really have no, no they either don't have a reason to hate each other or it's been so long ago uh, that no one remembers it anymore and I think it's the same with the Harkonnens and the Trades. yeah but it's just like didn't pick that up in, it's just like oh yeah we've got to watch out for the Harkonnens I'm like why <laughs> it, it, it's like they, oh yeah they're attacking I think, but I'm like why did did you attack them first and everything and it's just there it was just I just felt like there was one Maybe I did miss it, but I just felt there was like something that there I just needed to be like, okay, this is there's a reason reason that they hate each other, and I just I don't know whether I did miss it or maybe it isn't there, and I should have just picked it up. I didn't see why there would for me I didn't see an explanation as to why these two families hated each other. It just seemed oh it was like oh the Atreides are moving moving to take over this planet that um, from the Harkonnens because the Emperor decrees. Because <laughs> the, the emperor decreed it, and but they're hunting down the Harkonnens shadow agents, and I was like, I still don't see why they hate. Uh, anyway, that's <laughs> yeah. So I I don't dislike it. I'm gradually I'm I am gradually making my way through it, and I have like I said, I have had some points where I found it really interesting and really enjoy it. I find myself going through it quite quickly, and other times it just kind of I'm, I want to get to the end of it because I want to read it before the film comes out. I want to see what happens at the end, so I'm not going to give up on it. I think the film's only going to be a certain part of the book. I think the, I think they're f- splitting the film into two. So you get about halfway through the book. So there's yeah. a time skip in the roughly the middle, well, at some point in the book. Mm. So it might be around there, some people were discussing. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like it, There are some parts I'm really enjoying. But yeah, I just feel like the way, it, like you said, the way it's written, it hops about a bit between characters. Maybe because of that. Between I, that and all the uh, world building. building. Yeah. Do you, would you say you prefer your fantasy and science fiction with less world building? Because I noticed you really liked the world building in um, Murderbot by Martha Wells. Do you remember that book? Yeah, it was a short. It was quite, it was, it was I, I didn't think the world building was that special. I thought it was quite standard. But you were like, oh yeah, I really want to see it develop. I'm really quite interested to see what happens. I'm like, well, that's like, you know, standard level. Well, like the minimum you have to do to get away with a fantasy science fiction I th- book. I think it's because I felt like I was learning it with the character. And so and loads of books do that. And I've, I, I get what you mean. Because um, the characters in June are very much, they're fully aware of it. But you couldn't really have a character in June that is an exposition, walking exposition. No, but I think well, it's like um, going to the Joe Abercrombie series. You have these characters who are who are aware of the world, who are aware of the world, but, but they're the, with people who don't know. So the character explains to them 
yeah, you have like a character from who's only from a certain part of the world and that's all they've known. And now they're being introduced to so much more of it. But you also have this other character who can explain more Even about the more world than the main character. Yeah. And I think that is helpful for me as a reader because I'm like, Oh, okay. They have, they have some knowledge, which I can learn from, but I'm also seeing it from this other character's perspective where they have no clue what's going on, but they're, and I'm learning with them. Yeah. Or you're just like, I have no idea what's going on, but it's okay. Cause there'll be a character at some point who will tell me. Yeah. Whereas if I'm thrown a bo- bunch of information and it's like, I, I'm just expected to know this. I'm like, no, well, no. you're not going to like this. The world building in June is actually subtle. And what I mean by that is, you have to teach it yourself. You have to pick up clues in the writing and the way characters interact with each other and the way certain things are described and the way events happen that give clues into the way society works. Which is what I think I'm gradually getting to at about yeah. 250 pages. I'm beginning to learn it's slower. the world. It's much slower. And I am beginning to enjoy it more. Okay, I kind of gradually begin to understand more, pick it up a bit more. But I think that's why I struggled with the first couple of hundred pages. It's because it was, for me... It was slower still paced. Reading it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still reading it, but it, it has been slower because I'm trying to get my head around it. But yeah, I'm I'm not just not not enjoying it, but I'm not rushing through it at the same time. So it, it's it's interesting. I have to. Once it might think. help because they've already made a film adaptation of, of June decades what, ago. Re- yeah, the really old one. So I, I I don't know how well rated that film is, but maybe watching that. Phil, might actually help you picture the world. Mm. Well, that's, that's the thing. I'm wondering, because I think... Me I and think you Sting would... plays one of the Harkonnens, which is very confusing. Yeah. I think me and you, we both, we tend to prefer the source material. We both actually... Really, yes. We generally find books are better than film or TV adaptation. But I'm wondering if maybe when this film comes out, I may actually potentially enjoy or the film more or maybe depending on what I think of the end of the book because I'll see that visual manner as a very visual learner myself I'll be able to piece it together so much more but yeah yeah do, do, it's, it's interesting I'm I'm intrigued to see what I make of the rest of the book but yeah I think it like what you're saying about Shogun and our different approaches to um, world building everything is quite uh, quite interesting but uh, yeah going back to a book which i think we'd said on the previous pod uh, on our previous podcast that we watched the heroes by joe abercrombie yes absolutely fantastic <laughs> book absolutely. absolutely fantastic isn't it yes that that one scene in the battle yes so See, actually that's a really good comparison because in june they switch between characters very quickly don't they and they do the same thing in that one passage in the heroes but i think joe abercrombie does it so much better so the heroes is a spin-off of joe abercrombie's um the first law trilogy it's the second spin-off and basically the premise is it's a battle between two armies set over three days you have the northmen and then you have the union who are from the south or not the far south but basically the middle of this world and there yeah as tom said there is a particular chapter i think it's set on the second day of the battle where the main natural battle happens yes it's a chapter entirely devoted to people not even the main characters these are like literally characters who are only in that very brief chapter but they're characters who are fighting in this battle and it's constantly shifting and changing between these characters as, um, the, as the battle shifts and changes yeah and well I think uh, you it, have it, to it, read it, it to actually yeah, know what we're talking it about it doesn't involve any main character so I will I'll say minor spoilers here every t- it follows a character and every time that character dies 
it describes their death, and then immediately it shifts perspective to the character who then killed the previous character. Yeah. And it goes through maybe a dozen different characters within that chapter, describing them through this battle, what they're doing. They're charging up a hill, they get shot. It then changes his perspective to the, to, the, to the archer. And it's the archer who's watching as people get closer, and then, oh, someone stabbed him. And then it changes perspective to the guy with the sword who stabbed him, steps over the body, and is then faced by someone with a mace and gets their head caved in. It swaps to the guy who just... Yeah, and it's it's just it's chopping and changing, but it's so well written. It You're, really depicts the chaos of the battle. Yeah, it perfectly it? depicts the chaos. And like it's you ever get in that, you get in that flow where you're reading and you just power, you power through. through the chapter. And I'm just like, oh, blimey, I've read 20 pages and I didn't even realise because it was that good. I've just never read anything quite like it before, I don't think. No, it, we said, I said the same. Yeah, I think you said to me, oh, there's a fantastic chapter. And when I got to it, I said to you, oh, I read oh you that. know I read, what I mean. Yeah, I read that chapter and you were like, yeah, it's good, isn't it? I'm like, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, phenomenal because it follows, it, again, the great thing is it follows a number of characters who were introduced in the original trilogy. And it's really interesting to see how far they've come or how far they've fallen for some. But yeah, absolutely. Just perfect with Joe Abercrombie. Just read the book. Yeah. Just, just, just read it. We, we, we've mentioned Joe Abercrombie so many times on this thing. It, I even got a confused with George R. R. Martin. That's how highly I made <laughs> yeah. him. Joe, Joe Abercrombie. <laughs> yeah. Great, great spin-off Joe Abercrombie's. I really enjoy writing so his characters are, I feel are very well developed and the world is phenomenal. I, I love how it's hinting to stuff in for, for the um, sequel series as well, which... You've started, but yes. I haven't. I've still got one of the spin-offs I want to read before I start the uh, sequel series, but I love how it's hinting towards stuff of that as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the characters are phenomenal. I just love the fantasy world and the hints of magic and everything thrown in as well. Any other books you want to talk about, Tom, or are you kind of... I think that about? sums up what I've read. I mentioned this on the previous... I, I covered it in quite detail with uh, other Tom. Tom 2. Tom 2. Lesser Tom. Less... <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Although, technically, I've known him for longer, so he would be Tom 1 to me. And you be Tom 2. No, we all established he's Tom 2 <laughs> in the earlier of the podcast. You can rewind it if you want and see. You agreed. Um, you betrayed this other guy. <laughs> uh, on that podcast... He listens we- to these podcasts, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you betrayed him. I discussed Black Widow with him. What? And finally... you I finally have, seen you it. finally seen it. What did you make of it? Just give us all the briefish summary. There was a... I had a... One, only one thing kind of... Didn't ruin the film for me at all. I loved the film. But one thing kind of really confused me. And that was Red Guardian. I know a Romanian man who just reminds me of him so much. <laughs> I couldn't stop seeing... John, is that you? I couldn't stop seeing it. It's just like... I, I, I just couldn't sit, stop seeing it for the whole film. He wasn't Red Guardian to me anymore. He was the guy I know. <laughs> it was like, is that my friend? No, no. no. <laughs> just the accent and the, the, the beard and beer belly. It just, uh, <laughs> so it wasn't it was a bad film. It was just that, <laughs> oh, it looks like my friend. It broke the emotion. Uh, <laughs> broke the emotion. Well, for no, him. no, I was able to, no, because I, I could actually see my friend saying all his lines. <laughs> It was the funny thing. I was like, that is something he would say. So it was very, very minor. Uh, very, very minor. Right. Apart from that, I love the film. I spent most of the film going, I really hope Florence Pugh gets the family she wants. God, the poor, poor person. 
No, I did enjoy it. Although, actually, I would like to mention Ray Winston's terrible Russian accents. Yeah, it's like, I, I, I recognise him, and I'm pretty sure, I think I said this previous book, but I, I swear he used to do, like, gambling adverts. Yeah, he did. He did. Bet365. Yeah, that was it. Yep, yep. That's just like, that's the only thing I recognise him from, though. I do like him as an actor, but, my God, that Russian accent. Never ask a Cockney to do a Russian accent. No. Yeah, I've discussed it on the previous one. I quite liked it. I did have a few, like, gripes with it in certain bits, but... What were your gripes? Um, oh, wait, wait, if you did them on the last podcast, yeah, we'll move on. on I, can just listen. I can just listen to that. What are your... What are you planning to read next? Well, I don't know whether to finish off the Shadow and Bone trilogy, after really enjoying the TV show, to delve deeper into the Wheel of Time series Before ahead. Before, I, think I, I think the TV show will mostly cover the first book, it's quite long, but maybe I'll read the second book just to be safe. Otherwise, I'm bored and saved your bad and Sanderson. <laughs> We're going to have to get you a t-shirt with that one. Yes. Well, maybe we'll just message him and say he's a good if we sell the t-shirts on his website. What about you, Henry? I'm going to finish June. Okay, so that, that, that'll cover another three podcasts, maybe. Yeah, that'll cover at least another episode. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably on the next episode, I will say what I thought of it. Yeah, I mean, it took me two weeks to get through about a third or just under half of the book so who knows I finished that and then what I tend to do is I tend to read a non-fiction and a fiction Uh, yeah I know whatever so what non-fiction are you going to read I don't know I've got quite a few on my shelf at the moment Um, I'm tempted there's a Ryan Holiday book about the lives of the uh, lives of the Stoics I'm tempted to read because it shouldn't take me too long or there's a, a book about whiskey I'm almost tempted to read. Um, so I'll probably read one of those. And then I'm going to read Red Country, which is the next Joe Abercrombie uh, spin-off. And then, I don't know, I'm tempted. I need to read the next, maybe the next Jim Butcher, or the next, uh, what's the book after Retribution Falls? The Black Lung Captain. Marcus Black Lung Captain. I might read uh, one of those after that they are good books yes otherwise I do I might have another I think there might be one or two fiction books on my shelf I'll have to have a look might be maybe one of those we'll do next um or maybe even Shogun I might read Shogun I, I quite like the sound of Shogun although it's 1200 quite, pages who knows I might get I might get through it quicker than June if I enjoy it mm. <laughs> not by much it's like twice the length of June isn't it mm. Although the Ken Follett books are each about 800 pages, and I love those, so I sped through them. I keep seeing them around the place, like in... He's a very popular author. Although, uh, ne- next time we do the uh, podcast, um, the film of June might come out, so I can p- compare... Oh, yeah! I, we can compare the book to the film. This is true. Yeah, so I think that I'm loving the cast of the film already. That's fantastic. It's got, um, it's got uh, Joss Brolin. Who was Thanos? Yeah, it's, it's got, got Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa. They play like Os- the two like um, retainers. Yeah, it's got Oscar Isaac. Well, who's he playing? He's playing the father. He's playing. He's the playing Atreides. Atreides. Yeah, he's playing the Duke. Oh. Uh, it's got Timothy Charlemagne, who is in bloody everything nowadays. Yeah, he is. Um, okay, okay. He's, he's got, 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 got Zendaya. Does he have a surname? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, it's got um, Dave Batista. Who the hell is Dave Batista playing? He's one of the Harkonnens. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, it's got... Oh, I don't know the guys... Stellan Skarsgård. That's it. I, he I, plays the Baron. Yeah, I recognised him because I've been re-watching the Marvel films. <laughs> he's yep. the Doctor in it. I, I did not know his... I got name. so confused because in the first four film, he's like the voice of reason amongst those three scientists. Then 
in the second fourth film, he's a complete fucking nutcase. Mm. In the third fourth film, he's back to being the voice of... Uh, no, it's, uh, it's actually Avengers Age of Ultron. He's back to being the voice of reason again. He's got his teaching job back. I was like, hang on, how has this happened? How has this character gone from one extreme to the other and back again yeah. in the face of three films? I got so confused. Yeah, it's uh, yeah because I recognised it. I'm like, hang on, I've been watching him recently in the um, Avengers... Uh, the Marvel films and everything. Uh, I can I can remember his name, but yeah, it's it's got a fantastic cast, and it, from the snippets of the trailers I've seen, it looks like it will be good. But yeah, yeah, maybe it'll be one of the few times where it's like, actually, I prefer the film to the book, but <laughs> who knows? We'll um we'll find out. What about the Harry Potter films? The Harry Potter books. Uh, well, the Harry Potter books are what got me into reading in the first place. I absolutely loved. It. I think, oh. I think, uh, Harry Potter books and films, same with Lord of the Rings books and films, are both are fantastic within their own right. Okay. That's, that, that's a very safe answer. Yeah. <laughs> that has no strong opinions. No. I, I think, I, I think, I, I think I, I'd I be lo- very cautious. I love both. I love the Harry Potter books, love the Harry Potter films. I really enjoy the uh, Lord of the Rings films and the books and other media yeah I mean the same with like Game of Thrones love the book love the books love the TV series apart from maybe the last couple of seasons but yeah you have to yeah it has to be well have you seen the um, trailer for uh, Blood of Dragons it's a teaser trailer Uh, it's a teaser trailer out for this I've heard of it I've heard of it oh yeah you don't you don't Particularly watch trailers. Do I you? don't watch trailers if it's going to be something I probably watch anyway. Fair in enough. case you know, you know, I, I like to go in blind and be pleasantly surprised because too many times I've watched the trailers for something and then it turns out the trailer had all the best bits and I'm just gone. Oh yeah, that's a bit from the trailer. From the trailer. From the trailer. Oh, it's in the film. Like most comedy films, they s- stick in all the good jokes. All the good jokes, exactly. And the rest of the film is shit. Yeah, exactly. I think the only comedy film I think I've loved. Continue to laugh, start to finish at 21 and 22 Jump Street. Hilarious <laughs> every time I see those. Anyway, I think that does us for this episode. I mean, we managed what, 120 minutes? Well, a minute of an hour and 20 minutes? Yeah, before editing. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, Tom, any final words before we finish off this episode? Uh, only that I've been really enjoying this whiskey. Mm-hmm. How long have we gone through? Blimey, at least maybe a third. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> You have more. I'm good. I will have more. I'm loving this. Oh, it was a nice surprise, I have to admit. I was not expecting a Japanese whiskey today. I was expecting a smoky scotch, and this was quite a nice... Well, if you'd said, choose me one that you would really enjoy, you'd have what the extra strong smoke head right in front of you right now. (laughs) Yeah, true. What was it? Um, Smoke bomb or whatever Mm. it's called. Although I'm interested because they have a sherry. I, I'm I'm very particular to sherry cask whiskies, and they have a smokehead sherry oh. whiskey. So maybe I would be interested to try that at some point. We should we should start doing multiple whiskies per episode. No, oh, that'd be dangerous. <laughs> that'd be very dangerous. <laughs> well, then it would because we, we'd actually drink less. Because I'd be like, do I really want another glass of this? If I'm going to try another glass of that in a second. True. Maybe we should just get like little samples. We should get like yeah. a tasting pack to try. Or well, people could send us them. <laughs> heads, heads. Going back to, uh, yes, follow words over whiskey at uh, Instagram. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I think that wraps us up very nicely for this episode. Thank you very much for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.